Welcome to Actionable Insights on the Business of Healthcare, a podcast from Doctivity Health to help you navigate today's challenging healthcare environment. More than ever, business success enables investment in people and technology needed to best care for your patients. I'm your host, David Jolly. It's my pleasure today to talk with Michael Lascalzo, Executive Board Chair, Health System and Healthcare Investment Banking Executive, Senior Managing Director of Church Road Associates, and an adjunct faculty member at Duke University. Michael was a founder and managing director of Rudish Consulting Solutions, the Hunter Group, and Hunter Partners, and he is chair of the board of directors at Doctivity Health. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. I'll start with a loaded question. I'm reading about financial challenges at health organizations from coast to coast. What are your thoughts on the current state of the healthcare industry? A short answer is there's a lot of trouble on the horizon, but it's probably worth a minute or two to peel that back a bit. And maybe an interesting way to start to answer that question is to acknowledge that Kaiser, which I think everybody knows and has a very solid reputation from both the management and frankly from the care delivery perspective, and financial performance is going through some very difficult times. There are some who think that the consolidated organization, you know, could lose three or four billion dollars this year, a significant increase from a little bit better than break even last year. They are attributing their losses to, I think, things that are characteristic of the industry and part of this sort of difficulty that we see on the horizon. Staffing is a big time challenge, particularly for allied health professionals, nurses, etc. Lots of temporary talent being required because of staffing shortages for all kinds of reasons that I'm, you know, we can all speculate on. But the bottom line is that's a big time challenge for almost every provider. The second thing that's sort of interesting is part of the dynamics that I think one way or another is squeezing everybody. But when you think about it from Kaiser's perspective, it makes it a little bit more sense. I mean, Kaiser gets its revenue really from two major sources, if you think about it. They do participate in Medi-Cal, which is the California Medicaid system, which historically pays very weekly, would be a polite way to say it. Almost all of their remaining volume, one way or another, comes from their managed care organization, be it Medicare Advantage product or commercial Advantage product. So they really are an integrated system, the first for a very long while. Virtually all their physicians are employed. They own virtually all of their hospitals. They do admit patients to other hospitals, but they go out of their way to direct them to the, to the Kaiser hospitals. So you step back and you say they're caught in a vice where on the cost side, they're getting hit with some of the same kinds of problems that everybody else is facing in terms of shortages and supply chain and all of that. They have a very large physician network that has historically been very, very productive, but now they're experiencing significant turnover. There's a message here just for what it's worth. And the turnover is because Kaiser physicians are saying to themselves, I have to work too hard for Kaiser. I'd rather be hired by some not-for-profit system as an employed physician where I don't have to work so hard. Mm -hmm. There's a tongue-in-cheek 
statement for you. And then on the other side, they can't do anything about revenue. Medi-Cal is what it is, and everything else is part of their either premium revenue or quote-unquote capitation from Medicare. So one way or another, all of the providers are facing that challenge. What I would add to it, and then you can sort of move this any way you want to, is on the general not-for-profit system side, we all know that they have aggressively pursued employing physicians, thousands of them. And we all know that in general, they're losing significant amounts of money per physician. Depending on what you read, you could say $50,000, dollars $100,000 per physician, depending on the specialty or subspecialty. What do you attribute that to? Well, excuse my directness, but I attribute a lot of it to the fact that hospital and provider executives don't know how to manage employed physician networks. And you push them too hard and you pay the price that Kaiser is paying in terms of turnover. You don't push them hard enough and or you're not thoughtful enough about who you hire and where you position them and whether they really can generate revenue. It sounds like a delicate balance. Yeah, it ends up costing you fifty to $75,000 per. Where I was going is that when hospitals could negotiate very favorable rates with commercial insurers, they were covering that. They mm-hmm. were making up the volume associated with losses from Medicaid and Medicare, depending on their cost characteristics, and they were absorbing the losses on their commercial rates. Well, that door is closing. It is not closed completely, but it is closing. And where it was not at all uncommon for a hospital system to be losing 30 or $40 million a year on its employed physician network and making it up on the commercial payers, it's getting more and more difficult. So that coupled with the fact that Medicare still costs too much from the government's perspective and doesn't pay enough from the provider's perspective and interest rate hikes that are affecting access to capital and bad debt that's going up because the economy is softening and indigent care, which depending on the area may or may not be increasing, looks like a pretty difficult environment for providers that have kind of slid through the last 10 years by making money on one side and covering their losses on the other. It sounds like the perfect storm we've been talking about for years has arrived. Well, we've been forecasting it for a while, all right? Mm -hmm. I don't know that I'd be presumptuous enough to say that, quote unquote, it's arrived and the bottom's going to fall out tomorrow. I do see, I mean, think about the Philadelphia market just for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. Jefferson Health System brought in new management about six years ago. They got very aggressive. They have acquired a whole bunch of hospitals. They've cornered the market, including the non-paying market. And now they're stepping back saying, wow, we got this portfolio. I'm not sure we can make it work. That situation times 10 is Tower Health, which their anchor hospital was in Reading. It was a double A rated, very strong hospital. They got very aggressive. They got into lots of employed physicians. They got into acquiring lots of hospitals. They are on the verge of being unrated for Mm. something in the neighborhood of $400 million worth of long-term debt. And I would suspect that you can go to 30 other cities around the United States. Oh, let me add one more to it. Crozier Keystone Health System, a four-hospital system acquired by an investor-owned company, has nearly filed for bankruptcy. 
and has closed what was a very strong hospital in Delaware County. And I think the characteristics are the same for all three of those places. Aggressive acquisition, believing they would corner the market and jack up managed care rates or Mm -hmm. commercial insurance rates. Uh, The insurers hold the line. The market deteriorates. We have shortages of staff. We have a whole bunch of employed physicians, which was part of our quote unquote, controlling the market strategy. And it's all unraveling. So if you look at the rating agencies, they're saying that there are going to be fewer and fewer and fewer A-rated hospitals. I don't know if the bottom will completely fall out, but I think it's going to be very rocky for a while. Well, this is a trend that no one wants to be in. We talk about not managing employed physician networks properly. What would you advise is the way for them to do so? Well, this is going to turn into a pitch for productivity, and I don't mean it to, but it's a good example. In general, there are, of course, exceptions, but in general, hospitals have not put in place a disciplined management approach to managing their physician networks, and they have not been careful about expansion. So in effect, the vast majority of the employed physician networks take faculty practice plans out and take multi-specialty group practices out, have real productivity issues that don't relate to quote-unquote lazy physicians. They relate to, I don't get enough referrals. Orthopedic surgeon, I need to do X cases a week. I'm not seeing referrals that turn into X cases a week. Mm -hmm. Why? Because there's a lot of competition and because the referrals are all over the place. So Addressing this issue, I think, has two prongs. We used to say at Hunter, you're never going to downsize a health system to success. You may downsize it to stabilize it, but you have to generate top-line growth. Mm -hmm. And top-line growth, in the way the system works now, unless you decide to fire or lay off all of your employed physicians, which is possible but unlikely, is to get market share from somebody else. Because in general, share isn't increasing. So the notion of, quote unquote, having good, solid metrics that help you understand what's going on with this physician and this business unit. Let's say we're talking about a hospital system that has five employed orthopedic surgeons. They may not all be in the same location, but They're all part of the same clinical department and they should be managed as a unit because everybody knows orthopedic management is a little bit different, quote unquote, from managing five employed infectious disease physicians. Mm -hmm. All right. So do you have insights into the basics of their individual practices and their unit practices? And I mean the basics. Do you understand What's happening from a visit perspective? Do you understand what's happening from a financial or from a financial mix perspective? Do you understand what's happening in terms of the cost characteristics of the office and access to OR time? All of that are metrics that you ought to be able to have in front of you and see. And if they're not moving in the right direction, you gotta you ought to be able to ask some questions, figure out why, and hopefully do something about it. And then on the growth side, do you know where your referrals are coming from? 
you know, the concept, which made perfect sense if you were a consulting firm selling it to a healthcare organization is you're going to employ a whole bunch of primary care physicians. You're going to employ a relatively few number of specialists, the ones that really generate procedures in the hospital that generates margin for you. And you're going to go out of your way to be sure that the referrals from your employed primary care physicians go to your employed specialists. And you're going to know what else is out there and who they're referring to. Well, the medical record tells you what you're getting. And if you know how to analyze it, and some organizations do and some don't, you can pretty much figure out that as an orthopedic surgeon, I'm getting a good number of referrals from this employed primary care group. And when it goes up, you're thrilled. And when it goes down, you ask why. And I've been in this seat and I've asked these questions. And whoever leads the primary care practice will say, well, we just didn't have a lot of referrals this month. What we didn't know was, is that the truth? Not that this is a who's telling the truth kind of game, but what we didn't know is, are the referrals going to non-employed orthopedic surgeons? And if there are, in interests of good care, you can't say no, but you sure as heck can say, what is it we need to do so that you feel comfortable sending those kinds of cases to our employed orthopods as opposed to a private practice orthopod, let's take Philadelphia, at the Rothman Group. Rothman's a gigantic, very well-respected orthopedic group in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know the facts, all you can do is say the trend's down and listen to them saying, well, that's because we didn't have any. And then after three months, you just say, well, I guess... I was wrong. I guess we couldn't expect X number of referrals from this primary care group, where you never really knew whether there were referrals that were going somewhere else for legitimate clinical reasons. I've read that studies show up to 65% of health systems lost revenue can be attributed to referral leakage. And that's what you're talking about here, correct? It is absolutely what I'm talking about. I don't remember reading a study with that percentage, but it doesn't surprise me to tell you the truth. So 65 might be high, but it sure as heck isn't 20. I'll tell you that. And unless you've got availability to the kind of information that's built into Doctivity, you don't know. Now, the secret for all of this is if you do know, do you have in place an organization that can figure out what to do about it and execute? Doctivity can't do that. Maybe some advisory services can help, but I mean, what has to happen is actionable data has to be presented, and then the organization has to have in place a way to respond to the actionable data in a manner that addresses whatever the actionable data says, be it quality, be it financial mix, be it productivity. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have those kinds of metrics, because we live through this, if you don't know the financial mix of the referrals you're getting, either from your primary care physicians or from a private group, you might be happy as heck that you're getting 20 referrals a month to your orthopods, but they may be all very difficult Medicaid cases. I'm exaggerating, obviously, to make my point. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you aren't collecting, looking at, and then acting on that kind of data, you wake up at the end of the month and say, well, gee, we lost another $40,000 on our orthopedic surgeons. 40 a month is a half a million bucks. And that's five physicians. 
I got 10 subspecialty groups. I lose a half a million dollars on each one of them. That adds up pretty quickly. Yes, while your expenses continue. You mentioned referrals all over the place. And I think part of it is the financial mix. And would another part of that be that you have an orthopedic surgeon who might be a hand specialist and he or she is getting cases that are not related to his ortho subspecialty? Your example at the concept level is absolutely correct. All right. I think it happens more, to tell you the truth, in hand may not be a good example, right? But understanding what you're getting in general orthopedics, I mean, there are a lot of really good, solid general orthopods out there who do hips and knees and shoulders. And frankly, maybe they're not as good on shoulders as they are on knees. And maybe you got to know that and then start to work with the referrers to say, even though Dr. Smith is a really good guy, this has to be delicately delivered, probably by a physician and probably by the physician who leads the orthopedic group. But I could see a chairman of orthopedics, in fact, I've lived through it, sitting with a primary care physician group and saying, you know, we just recruited this, I'm going to make it up, physician who did an extra fellowship in knees. And he also spent X number, he or she spent X number of time units in LA at XYZ, where they have a really well-known knee program. We really think he ought to be getting the needs. And then you can follow it. But I mean, that's the kind of boots on the ground management that is supposed to be happening in employed physician networks that I honestly don't think is happening in many of them. In many cases, I think it comes back to them not having the right data. We talk about actionable data. You could be you could be buried in numbers and not really be looking at timely information or the right information. The right information is absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the timeliness monthly is more than good enough. I mean, if you had good metrics that come out every month that give you a profile of the operating and financial characteristics of either a physician or a practice, and then you overlay that with an understanding of where is he he or she getting their cases from. So I think you're saying the key is to have the right information and then knowing how to act on it. How does Doctivity provide the right information? Well, let's take a real life example that I've lived through where we didn't have the right information, all right? We've got a subspecialist, I don't care what it is, all right? Let's do it on the procedural side as opposed to the medical side, who isn't as busy as he'd like them to be. Well, Doctivity can look at what referrals is he getting from the employed primary care physicians in my network? And what, if any, is he getting from private primary care physicians? And for both of those groups, are there referrals going somewhere else? And if there are, somebody, and maybe it's a physician liaison, maybe it's the chairman of whatever subspecialty that is, maybe it's a physician who is responsible for the whole group, if it's a large enough group, has to go out, sit down with that primary care group and say, we've got information that leads us to believe this is happening. First of all, kind of let's get on the same page. Are you guys sending a lot of your XYZs to Rothman? just to make that up because it makes sense, all right? And if the answer is yes, very delicately, a clinical leader needs to say, okay, what do we need to do so that you can try us and see if we can give you the same kind of service or outcome? Mm -hmm. 
And that's one-on-one. I ran a troubled faculty practice plan, I won't say where, with 350 physicians in it. We put in place monthly operations reviews. We reviewed what we had in terms of financial information. And over the course of the year, year and a half, the financial information and the statistics got better. And we did make some improvement by asking the kinds of questions you would ask with the information you had, but we had nothing about leakage. Mm -hmm. And the only thing we had about referrals is what we were getting, not what we weren't getting. And knowing what you weren't getting was gigantically important. But somebody has to look at it every month and then do something with it. Mm -hmm. And relationship building. You bet. I mean, if you operate from the premise that, that the market isn't growing significantly, and it, I think it is not growing significantly. If you're going to have top line growth, you're going to have to take it from somebody. And that's at the hospital level and that's at the physician practice level. So to do that, you have to be on your game. You need to be on top of it and seeing where it's going. And then you have to provide quality. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, all due respect to Press Ganey and quality surveys and what Medicare and Medicaid says. When a clinical executive meets with a non-employed clinical executive or an employed one, you'll frequently hear some really important insights. We don't refer to him because his admission nurse is a pain in the, oh, really? Why? What's going on? It magnifies the role of the physician liaison as well. Yeah. So if you're, you know, you don't assume that it's correct. You don't go beat up whoever they, they are. You start to say, is there something that we need to look at here? If there is, we'll try to do something about it. But you only do that if you have the data and you get yourself out in front of them and listen to what they're saying. And whether that conversation is with a physician liaison or with clinician to clinician, that's management. And I'm not sure how much of that is really happening. And monitoring it on a, you don't have to monitor it on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. You go out and you work with the private primary care physicians, and they say, okay, we're going to start referring. Well, you look at it. And if the referrals do go up, you go out and thank them and say, you know, hey, looks like we're running in the right direction. What what more can we do? If they aren't, and or if it looks like it's getting worse, you got to go out and do the same thing. And in some cases, you probably can't do anything about it. But my contention is that if you're on top of it, in a lot of cases, you can do something about it. And let's say that the 65% number isn't good and it's really 50. If I can move the needle down to 35, that's big top line growth. Sure, absolutely. What are your thoughts on the insurance for all concept? Could that in any way help us with this dynamic we're talking about? Well, in theory, it will remove a variable that might help. So if everybody has insurance and quote unquote, if everybody is paid the same, and I do have some experience in that space, I'll come back to it in a second, then the notion of not wanting these kinds of patients with these financial characteristics reduces the variable and potentially makes it, quote unquote, easy. I was at Arthur Anderson in the healthcare practice in Philadelphia as both a senior manager and then a partner when Chapter 83 went in, in 1983, that proves how old I am, in New Jersey, which was an all-payer system. Now, the concept was, frankly, wonderful. The state of New Jersey got a waiver from Medicare, from the feds, 
and put in place a system where a hospital's rates were the same, regardless of whether it was a Medicaid, Medicare, or commercial insurance payer. Now, that did not move to the physician practice side, but use the, use the case example. The concept was brilliant. After five years, they figured out they couldn't make it work because the economics didn't work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it unraveled, all right? right? So when people talk to me about an all-payer system, I always think tongue-in-cheek, that's a wonderful concept if the economics work. Now, when a politician says Medicare for all, if it's Medicare for all at Medicare rates, there's going to end up being giant access issues because hospitals in general can't survive on Medicare rates. And for sure, they can't survive on Medicaid rates. So now you get into, okay, I like the concept of an all-payer system. It has lots of advantages. I can incentivize for quality and a lot of other things. Can I find a way to make the economics work without charging the commercial insurers a phenomenal amount of money to offset the implications of other kinds of patients? What's your best advice for health organizations and providers to succeed moving forward? Well, the challenge of manpower and supply chain is, quote unquote, over my pay grade. <laughs> I mean, th those are complicated issues that unfortunately are going to take longer to solve. Supply chain, probably not, but allied health professionals, yes. I think in the near term, they have to give as much focus to top line growth as they give to reducing expenses. So you got to do both. And I think they have to put in place basic management systems and disciplines where business units are evaluated on agreed to metrics on an agreed to schedule. And the metrics have to include quality, service, financial performance, and growth. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. We've been talking about financial challenges in healthcare with Finance and Operations Executive Michael Lascalzo, Chair of the Doctivity Health Board of Directors. Thanks for listening and watch for our next edition of Actionable Insights on the Business of Healthcare. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please share, rate, and review it on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. For more information on how Doctivity provides actionable insights to drive revenue and improve operational performance, visit DoctivityHealth.com, where you will find our videos, blogs, case studies, and more. See you next time for Doctivity's actionable insights on the business of healthcare.